It's good to see you guys. So my name is Eric Reed. This is uh, my third year to be at Impact. I am excited to be back with you guys. I enjoy it. It's actually one of those things I look forward to on my calendar every year. So I'm thankful for Paul's leadership and the team that organizes this uh, for letting me be a part of it. And uh, let me just, can I just, right out of the gate, um, let me just share with you my heart for this morning, my heart for today, but particularly for these next few moments here. I think a lot of times when we gather together like this and we hear a sermon or we sing songs, it's very easy for us because we've done this more than once before to go through the motions, to show up, to listen. Yeah, we get our Bibles out. We might jot down a few notes. But listen, what if I told you this morning that you may hear the voice of God speak in a life-changing way to you in the next 30 minutes? What if I told you that this moment is going to mark a moment in your life that becomes before and after? That he's going to do something in you that you'll never be able to go back and undo. That, that he's going to set you on a trajectory that changes everything about who you are and how you live. I think we would come into these times of gatherings with a lot more anticipation, a lot more eagerness, a lot more desire to say, yes, Lord, do that in me. You see, because when you look throughout Scripture, you see when the Lord meets with his people, things change. People change. You don't stay the same when you come face to face with the living God. When he speaks a word into your life, you don't go, oh, that was good, and then move on to the, to the next set of tasks that we have on the schedule. So, so here's what I want you to know. The listening of this message is warfare, there is warfare going on for your heart right now. You may not recognize stakes are incredibly high. You have an enemy who wants to snatch the seeds that have been planted last night and Thursday night, this morning already, and even right now, so that they will not take root, so that you will not be transformed and changed. The enemy is at work, and you need to know that there's a battle going on in the unseen right now. In the heavenlies, there's a battle for whether or not something happens in your heart this morning. So listen with urgency. Listen not to my words so that you can go, oh, I agree with that, or oh, that was good. And ask, Lord, are you speaking to me through this? Lord, what are you saying to me in this? I believe that's what the Lord wants to do this morning through his word, because the Bible is God's word. You see God approach Moses, you see God speak to Abram, you see the Lord speak to people in the Bible, and you think something less than that's happening this morning. It's not. When God's word is read to his people, God speaks, and he changes us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to ask us to stand together as we read God's word this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, meaning the day he returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the special offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are gathered together this morning. Thankful that you speak. You are the living God. We are not studying about history this morning, but we are speaking about the God who lives. And you have gathered us here this weekend by your sovereign purpose. Each one of us are here by your design because you have desires for what we're going to encounter this weekend to hear from you, to examine our hearts, to send us on mission, to make us grapple with sin, to to raise our esteeming and treasuring of Christ. And so we are here gathered together in the name of Jesus, knowing that's our acceptance. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, because that's how we change asking you to do a work. May we be attentive to what you would speak to us this morning. That you would be glorified and we would be filled with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last year, we had a family come to the church that I pastor and um, they quickly started assimilating and getting involved in our church. Uh, they were from out of state. They moved in, and, and immediately uh, they got plugged in to our, uh, our church. They started going to a small group. They started giving. They started uh, really becoming a lot more active in the church, and they began going through the membership process. And in the course of doing this, uh, we had some issues begin to raise up from their small group. Uh, this family had what I would call a cheap grace theology uh, that they really held to. And, and, and here's what that looked like. They believed that we were all, we are all saved through faith in Christ and our sins are forgiven. And so therefore, therefore, talking about sin, talking about the need to repent, talking about how um, ongoing habitual sin affects our relationship with God, they didn't want to talk about that. In fact, it was just, oh, well, God loves you. So, you know, it, don't worry, don't talk about sin. This sin stuff is not really something God's interested in. He loves you and he gave you grace. And they started having talks about this in the small group and it started raising issues. And and we sat down to talk with them and we pointed out in scripture how, yes, the grace of God is the only reason why any of us are saved. And yes, God loves you before you've ever obeyed him. He loved you first. However, those who come into relationship with God are called to repent of sin, not once, but daily. 
Moment by moment, hour by hour, we are to live a lifestyle of faith in Christ and repentance from sin. And he did not believe that. He had picked up from bad teaching on television preachers and and some churches he had been at in the past that this whole idea of talking about sin, this whole idea of dealing with sin is not for the Christian. And I just want to say that is not true. This is not only a wrong theology. It's not just a bad theology. It is a dangerous theology. And it's dangerous for this reason. The Bible makes it clear that, that the Lord our God is holy, holy, holy. He does not wink at sin. He, he's not cool with it. He, he's not going, oh yeah, well don't worry about all that stuff. Sin's a big deal. We are called to obedience to God, and we are called to fight against the sin that's in our lives. And, and, and you need to understand this. There's an implication if we don't. John Owen, the dead Puritan from the 1500s, said it like this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or your sin will be killing you. And I would just add a caveat to that. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing your joy. If you don't actively fight against sin, sin is actually going to be fighting against the joy that you were made to experience in fellowship with God. Did you know that the central theme of the Bible, as you begin to read scripture, you see this theme throughout. Communion with God is why you were made, and it's ultimately why you were saved. You were made for a fellowship with him. In the beginning, God created man not to believe in him. He was right there to be seen, but to walk with him to relate to him, to be in fellowship with him. But then sin severs that communion. And yet God pursues us. God gives the nation of Israel a way by which they could be made right with him and commune with him. And eventually he sent a savior that all the world could be made right with him. Communion could be restored through Christ. And one day we will spend eternity forever, not just believing in God, but communing with him in eternity. Communion with God is what you were made for, and it's what you were saved for. And I just want to tell you, the Bible makes it clear, and and people throughout church history, Christians, will attest that the fullness of joy that your heart yearns for is found in that communion. David says it in Psalm 1611 like this. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. By the way, if something's full, how much room is there left for more? None. That's right. You're good. You're good theologians. You got this, right? There's no more room, fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Infinite, unending pleasure in the presence of God. Uh, Jesus, in John 15, he's talking about abiding in him. He makes this whole connection of, I'm the vine, and you're the branches, and you're called to abide in me. And then he goes on to say this in John 15, 11. He says, I tell you these things. I- I'm teaching you this for this reason, that my joy will be in you, and your joy will be made full. So this idea of joy in relationship with God is taught all throughout Scripture. The joy your heart longs for and it wants so desperately is not found in all the things we often run after. It's found in fellowship with the living God. Now here's what's probably happening right now. I could probably close the message up and in your head you would agree with me. right? You're not fighting against what I'm teaching or what I'm saying right now in your head. But, but more than likely, here's the truth. Your heart is lagging behind. You and I probably believed this before I even stood up to teach it. But the problem is that our heart often lags behind. 
We say we believe that fullness of joy is found in him, but often our hearts say something else will satisfy me. Our hearts say something else will give me the joy that I'm looking for. And here's what those things often are. It's the sin that we run after. Nobody runs after sin because they think it's going to be miserable. We run after sin because we think it's going to satisfy us. And what ends up happening is the enemy deceives us into believing that fullness of joy is found in our sin and not in God. This has been his tactic from the beginning, by the way. You look in Genesis 3, right? God makes man and says, I'm going to walk with you and you're going to walk with me. And this is, this is called paradise when you get to do that. And he says, everything I've made is yours. I'm a, I'm a father who gives good gifts to his children. So you can eat of any and all of these trees. Just stay away from this one. This one is not for you. All the rest are. And the enemy comes and says, hey, um, did God really say that you can't have any of these trees? What a terrible God. He begins by distorting God's word. Did, he, did God really say you can't eat of any of this fruit? And Eve doesn't fall for it at first. She says, no, he didn't say that we can't eat any of this fruit. He just says we can't, uh, we, we can't eat of this tree or touch it or we die. So when distorting God's word doesn't work, the enemy goes to a second tactic, which is flat out denying God's word. And what does he say? You will not surely die. You're not going to die. God just knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. And, and you'll have your eyes open. And you, there's a lot of joy in eating this fruit. And what did they do? They ate. They ate. They believed the law. See, see, here's what scripture teaches. Let me show it to you in a nerdy way. All right, let me show you some graphs here real quick. This is, this is what the Bible teaches, okay? Follow with me. If you look on the side screens. The more obedient you are, the more joy you experience. In fact, if, if you're a real math nerd, you know these words should actually be reversed, okay? Obedience should be on the bottom. Joy should be on the other side. The more obedient you are to the Lord, the more joy you will experience. This is what the Bible teaches, the more obedient you are, the more joy you experience. Because, listen, because the more obedient you are, the closer your relationship with the Lord is. Here's what the Bible also teaches. The more disobedient you are, the more miserable you'll be. The more disobedient to the Lord you are, the more misery you will experience. Because it affects your communion with him. Now, here's what the enemy does. He's subtle. And he's most dangerous when he's most subtle. Here's what he does. He says, no, 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 no. He says, the truth of the matter is, is the more disobedient you are, the more joy there is. The more disobedient you are, the more joy there is. Think about this. Keep this image in mind and go back to what the enemy said to Eve. He says, you will not surely die. The Lord just knows that when you eat of it, disobedience, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God because that's where joy is. Disobedience brings joy. And then he also does this. He says, and obedience is misery. Don't sleep with someone who you're not married to. Ah, oh, misery. What a buzzkill. Christians who obey God, they have no fun. Oh, you're one of those people, huh? You don't go out and get drunk and you don't go out. The enemy has done a great job of convincing us that the more obedient you are to God, the more miserable you'll be. He's been doing this from the beginning. And some of you have taken the bait and you've ignored the hook. This matters a big deal, friends. The enemy's been pulling this, this, this issue on 
the children of God forever. And so this is why what I want to talk about this morning is that you and I must strive for obedience. You, won't, you will not trip into obedience. You will not stumble into fighting sin. You have to strive for it. In fact, let's go back and look at the text that we read a while ago, Philippians 2. Beginning in verse 12, Paul starts with the word, therefore. So anytime you see the word, therefore, he's piggybacking off of something he's already said. And, and what did he say in Philippians 1 and 2? He basically says this. Here's the summary. He says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Jesus is greater than all. To live for him is the greatest pleasure. And to die for him means greater pleasure because I get to be face to face with him. And in Philippians 2, he says, use Jesus himself as your example for this. Who laid down his life. He died to himself. He humbled himself, he left heaven's comforts, and he came for you, humbled himself, and gave himself on a cross. He says, consider the example of Jesus and follow it in humility. Die to yourself and live for Christ. Now he says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says this. Just as you have always obeyed when you were with me and when I was with you, I'm asking you that now that I'm going somewhere else, you continue in obedience. In other words, listen, obedience for the Christian is expected. You and I are expected to obey God, to submit to his word. In fact, John, the disciple of Jesus, in 1 John just hammers this. In 1 John chapter 1, he just hammers this point. He says, if you say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness, you know what you are? A liar. He says, if you say you have fellowship with him but you walk in darkness, you lie. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. So this idea that you can just say, oh, grace has covered me, so therefore I don't have to obey God because I'm just covered by grace. No, 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 no. You, you're covered by grace, and that, that gives you a standing with God, but your obedience determines how close your relationship is with God. And your relationship with God is where joy is found. You are expected to walk in obedience. So here's what he says. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's what he says to do. In light of the fact that you're called to obey, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You must strive. You must pursue godliness. You must run after holiness. You must fight sin in your life actively there is no folding your arms or putting your hands in your pockets and fighting sin you must strive for you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling and here's the hope we have as we do so for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure in other words the Lord takes great delight in empowering you for this labor the Holy Spirit dwells in the people of God to make us holy. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. You are called to strive, and you strive knowing that it is a God-empowered 
striving. How many of us here are seeing the importance of fighting sin in our own lives? How many of us here are really striving to fight sin? Really striving to put obedience to God as a front burner issue? Versus the number of us who go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I prayed the prayer and I walked an aisle and I go to church and I do these things. And yet when you look at your life, your life looks just like everyone who doesn't claim Christ as Savior. In fact, he goes on. Listen to what he says. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You are called to be children of God in the midst of a world with crooked and twisted people in it. A corrupt age. Friends, does it take long to to look around and recognize that we live in a crooked and twisted generation? I mean, are any of us under the illusion when you look out into the world and go, you know, everything's pretty okay. You know, people... People esteem God and they live for him and, you know, we take serious what he calls sin. I don't think when you look around you see that, do you? And here's what's terrifying. When you look in our churches, you often don't see it either. And let's go a step deeper. When you look in your own heart, you often don't. You are called to be children of God in the midst of a crooked generation. By the way, children of God without blemish. And the reason we're called to do this, he says, is so that we can hold fast. I'm sorry. Among whom you are, uh, you shine as lights in the world. The reason you're called to do this is so that your light can shine in a world of darkness. You're called to shine as lights. But friends, you can't shine as light if you walk in the dark. He goes on, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul goes, I want to be able to present you on that day as people who ran the race after God and that my work wasn't in vain because you didn't fall off. You didn't follow the course of this world. You didn't follow after all those who sin and profane the name of God. No, you shined as lights. You were a a children of God without blemish. You fought for holiness. He goes on, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul makes it clear in this text, we are called to be lights in the world and we cannot, I repeat, we cannot do that if we actively walk in sin. So you and I have to engage in this battle with indwelling sin. Yes, when you come to faith in Christ, listen to me, your sins, all of them, your past, your present, even your future sins are called forgiven. They are atoned for. And so when Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, he doesn't mean mostly. He means none. There's no condemnation. God's wrath has already been poured out on the head of his son. So there's none left for you. Good news. Therefore, in light of that, you must go to war with the indwelling sin that still remains 
in you. Paul also talks in his writings about the old man has to still be dealt with. The old man that still lurks within you is still being put to death. You have to fight indwelling sin. And here's the truth of the matter. Every single one of us here have this internal drill sergeant that lives inside of us that's always trying to cause us to obey its commands. And that internal drill sergeant within each of us is indwelling sin. And it's the enemy whispering saying, this will really make you happy. The joy you want is found in this or this or this. And God following him, obeying him, that's, that's robbing you of joy. Friends, this is the battle every single one of us are engaged in every single day. There's a war for your heart, hour by hour. And let me tell you what's on the line in this battle, your joy. If you think you can have joy to the fullest and yet be living in habitual sin, you're deceiving yourself. The, the irony is the thing that you think sin's going to give you is fullness of joy. It's the deception of the enemy. You remember when Jonah, remember when Jonah is told go to, go to Nineveh and he buys, a, he buys a, a boat ticket for Tarshish? You remember that? And he gets on the boat and halfway through the trip, right, the Lord sends a storm upon the sea and then it ends up in Jonah being dumped over the boat bottom of the ocean before he comes to this recognition I need the mercy of God I'm a sinner but here's what's interesting you know he never made it to Tarshish he bought a ticket but he didn't get to Tarshish and here's what this teaches us about sin you will always pay the fare but it'll never take you where you think it is going it will never take you to the destination you think you'll always pay the fare and you'll never get where you think you're going Sin promises to take you to this place and to give you this kind of joy, but it never can take you there. You'll pay the price, and you'll buy the ticket, but you'll never arrive. Sin lies to you and deceives you. And so there is a battle for believing the truth that only in the presence of God and only in this relationship do we have real joy. And your relationship with God gets closer the more we put off sin and the more we walk in righteousness with him. I want you to imagine in your mind with me a tug-of-war battle. And here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine you on one side of the rope, okay? I want you to imagine you on one side of the rope, and I want you to imagine on the other side of the rope about six or seven other individuals pulling against you. You have... You have a disadvantage, to say the least, right? And I want you to see these six or seven other people on the other side of the rope, not as people, but as indwelling sin that is always trying to take from you closeness with God. It's your lust. It's your pride. It's your unwillingness to believe and to maintain the sexual boundaries that God puts up for his people. It's your unwillingness to deal with disobedience to your parents or this rebellious spirit that you have against them. It's your unwillingness to find your identity in Christ instead of in popularity or in power. And here's what you've got to realize. Those indwelling sins are always pulling. They never take naps. They never sleep. And so if you're not actively fighting, what do you think happens? They take it. 
He gets it. If you're not even pulling and offering resistance, how strong do you think you're going to stand? You can't. The other piece is that you can't fight alone either because let's just be honest, you don't have the strength anyway, do you, even if you fight? So let's talk about how we begin to deal with this. I want to talk about how we engage in this right here on a daily basis. Forget daily. How we engage in this on an hour-by-hour basis. I want to help you to think through this for a minute. Let me give you the first one. The first thing we have to start doing is we have to stop looking at our sin as this wonderful, joy-giving thing that we wish we could have, but we know we're not supposed to. we got to start seeing sin for what it really is. It's not this great, joy-giving thing that, man, we wish we could have, but we know we're not supposed to because we're Christians. That's the, that's the completely wrong approach. As a pastor, I counsel um, people in our church, men, men whose marriages are struggling because they have pornography addictions or, or individuals who have alcohol addictions and it's about to take their family. And, and you know how their approach to sin often is? Man, I really wish... You know, I mean, I wish I could engage in, I can manage this and control this. And I really wish, I, I, I know I'm not supposed to, right? But it's, it's so enticing. And, and I'm going, the problem is, is you're looking at this the completely wrong way. Don't look at this thing as something you wish you could have, but you know you, you're not supposed to. See it as the thing that wants to kill you. It wants to take your family. It wants to steal your wife. It wants to rip away your children. Hey, how many, how many people do you know who would nestle up and make friends with somebody trying to take their girl from them? How, how many people, like, if you had a girlfriend and your, your, your dude was trying to take your girlfriend from it, how many of you would like, be like, oh, no, it's cool, man, we're buds? Yeah. Oh, he's a good dude, man. He just, you know, he's a, he's a great guy. He's just, you know, trying to take my girlfriend from me. No, none of us would nestle up with him and be like, hey, what are you doing, buddy? Not that you do that anyway, right? But you see what I'm saying, right? No, we, no, we need to see it as something that's trying to take from us what we love. Start seeing your sin for what it really is. It wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Not this enticing, pretty thing that we, boy, we wish we could have, but we know it's off limit. No. Let me give you a second thing. Confess your sins before God and name them, describe them, not for God's sake, but for yours. How many of you, when you pray, you, you never get beyond, Lord, forgive me for my sins? How many, how many of you, don't raise your hand because I think it'd probably be too embarrassing because I think we do it too often. We don't even name our sins individually a lot of times because we feel embarrassed to do it. So we pray in real general terms like, you know, Father, forgive me of my sin because, you know, we don't want to name how ugly it really is, do we? By the way, you know the only person you're fooling in that is you, not God. He knows your sin. He knows it even better than you and me. The only person we're fooling when we don't confess it is ourselves. Here's what Augustine says. Augustine says, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. I like that. Augustine says, the first beginning of good works is actually confessing your evil works. That's how you're on the right track. Name your sin. Let me give you a third one. Make a fight list. Make a fight list. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you have certain sins that your heart's drawn to, 
You're not caught by, uh, surprised by it. You're not caught off guard by it. For some of you, if I said, hey, give me the top three sins you wrestle with, you don't even have to think. You don't even have to go like, uh, let me see. Uh, none of us are that holy. Let's just be real. You can name them. So here's the deal. If you can name them, keep them in front of you regularly. Go through, the, go through them on a daily basis and say, have I done that today? You'd be surprised at how often you sin, but you have conditioned yourself to not feel the effects of it, to not feel a conviction for it. You'd be amazed at how often you lust and you don't even think about it as lust anymore. Or how often you get angry and you don't think about it as anger anymore. Make a fight list. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Let me give you another one. Fight sin with the sword of the Spirit. So we talked about how we can't fight alone anyway, uh, one against all our enemies, right? So fight with the sword of the Spirit. Your weapon in this fight is the Word of God. And if you know what your sins are, your fight list, then find scriptures that you can use to combat or stand firm against it. If you struggle with lust, find some passages on lust. If you struggle with anger, find some passages about anger. If you struggle with worry or depression or anxiety or pride or popularity needs, right? find scripture that combat it. And when you see it rearing its ugly head, read the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Remember the word of God. Let me give you another one. Fight sin by relying on the Holy Spirit. Again, you don't fight alone. Galatians 5.16 says something incredible. Paul says this, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me repeat that because somebody needs to hear how strong of a promise that is. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Your help comes from the Lord. The Lord fights with you and for you. Let me give you another one. Fight sin in community with others. Another reason why you need to realize that you're on the rope here is that you need some people who can be on the rope with you. Your, your sin, indwelling sin, is always pulling. There's no naps, there's no breaks, there's no holidays or vacations. They're always pulling. Your heart is an idle factory, and it'll keep pumping out new ones if you conquer old ones. So you always have to fight. You fight with God's word, you fight with the Holy Spirit's power, and you fight by bringing some other people to join you in the struggle. Which means this, you don't have to tell everybody your sin, but you better have two or three others that you can You better have some people that you can get real with and take off your mask and quit going to masquerade ball when you go to church and get real. Get real about where you're struggling. Get real about where you're hurting. Get real about where your temptations are with some people who can ask you about it and call you on the carpet. It's the most holy and sanctifying thing you could do. Let me give you one more. Stop focusing so much on not sinning and set your eyes on a greater prize to pursue. Namely, the joy that's found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't sit there and look at sin and go, I want to stop sinning. I want to stop sinning. I want to stop sinning. No, no. Fix your eyes on Jesus and make your pursuit to see how close you can get with him. See, when you have a greater treasure, all the lesser treasures aren't as appealing. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. He's the all-satisfying one. And when you make pursuing and running after him your primary aim, sin loses its appetite and grip. So pursue a greater 
affection. Thomas Chalmers said it like this, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. I can't just say, oh, that's worthless. Don't run after that. Instead, it can be supplanted by a love which is more worthy than itself. The only way you supplant a love for a lesser thing is to love a greater thing. And you're invited to love the Lord of glory and to pursue him. Now, I'm going to begin to wrap up I want to encourage us to understand here, there is a connection between your obedience and your abiding in him. John 15, 10 says it like this. If you keep my commandments, this is Jesus speaking. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. There is a direct connection between your obedience and your abiding There's a direct connection between your obedience and how close your communion with God will be. Everybody here would give the Sunday school answer if I said, hey, how many of you here want to be closer to the Lord? Everybody would be like. But if I asked you, how hard are you running after obedience and fighting sin so that you can be closer to the Lord? I bet our hands would not be as many. There's a cost to following Jesus, isn't there? He bids us to come and die. When we come after him, he bids us to lay down our lives. He does not let us customize our Christian experience. He does not let us tailor it the way we want it. He's not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. When you come to Jesus and you step into his grace and his love and his mercy, he also expects for you To put off the old self. Put to death what remains earthly in you, Colossians 3. Put it to death. Fight sin. Strive for obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that you will be children of God without blemish in a world that is crooked and twisted. Friends, You are to put Christ on display in your everyday life by how you walk with him and serve him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you can't nestle up close to your sin and think that that's okay. Rosaria Butterfield said it like this, and I think this is powerful. The cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush. The cross never makes itself an ally with the sin it must crush. You must be fighting sin and killing sin or sin will be killing your joy. And the joy that you long for is found in Jesus Christ. Oh, if I could do anything today and the Lord would grant my desires for you is that you would believe that. That fullness of joy is found in him. Because if you could really get your heart gripped by that, I could make a promise to you. The appetite for sin and the the lie that it will give you the joy you look for would fade. But a lot of us believe it with our heads but not our hearts. Now a message like this, I'm going to ask Aaron and the guys to go ahead and come back out. A message like this should raise to your mind 
the idea of your sin and your imperfections. I, I hope at some level the Holy Spirit is raising to mind those sins in your own life. And what can happen as you think about those sins in your own life is you could begin to get this sense of how unworthy and undeserving and how stained and how dirty you are and that the Lord could never love you. You could begin to believe that. And here's what I want to say. You're more sinful than you would dare ever want to admit, but you are more loved than you could dare ever imagine. And the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus is not caught off guard by the depths of our sin. He actually knows it completely. And he went to the cross of Calvary to bear our sins on himself. And so the first thing that some of you here need to do is not say, man, I've been disobedient. Maybe I can obey my way to God loving me. Listen, guys, lock in with me here. Lock in. You cannot obey your way into God loving you. God loves you. And receiving his love by grace makes us want to obey. Your obedience does not earn God's love. God loves you already. The Bible says that this, that God has demonstrated his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Not once you cleaned your act up but while you were still a sinner. And this is love. Not that you love God, but that God has loved us and gave his son Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. He bore the wrath of God in our place. Not, not when we passed the Christianity test and we could answer all the theology. Not once we had served a probationary period of good behavior and good works, but while we were still sinners. The first and most important thing each of us may, must do this morning is this. We must cast ourselves completely into Christ. Cling to his obedience and righteousness. Cling to his life-giving sacrifice to us. Trust Christ for salvation. And now here's the second part. Once you have trusted Christ for the grace and forgiveness that he gives, listen, then you pursue obedience. Not so that he will love you, but because he has so thoroughly loved you. And as you do that, you not only know that you have a union with God, your legal status has changed, but now you have communion with God. Your relation status has changed. And you get to walk in the fullness of joy that's found in Christ alone. Father, I thank you so much for your grace this morning. Oh God, I feel so inadequate to open anyone's eyes to these truths. And yet, Lord, you alone can do this work. And you delight to do this work. So my prayer over these students, even these student leaders would be that our hearts would be captured by the reality of grace shown through Christ for sinners like us. That we have been disobedient, and yet there is no amount of obedience that could ever pay our debt. Christ alone has paid our debt. 
So we thank you. But those who have been made children of God by your grace, God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see that the joy our hearts long for is found as we draw closer and closer to you. And that the pathway for doing this is that we fight sin and we strive for holiness and obedience. So I pray for sins this morning to be repented of. I pray for confession this morning before you in their hearts that they would turn from these things that have enslaved them. Sexual immorality, the incessant need for popularity or approval or status. For those who have had rocky relationships with their parents and they keep butting heads against their authority that they would humble themselves this morning and countless other things, Lord, that you are raising up to their consciousness even now. I pray that they would confess them and turn from them and would seek to obey you. Oh, God, search us and examine us. And help us to kill the sin that wants to kill our joy. By the power of your Holy Spirit and in community with your bride, we can win this fight. So do this work in us. We pray, we plead, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.